talking to the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumball, a New York City-based management consulting firm specializing in leadership development, public speaking, and executive coaching. He's also a founding partner of the Global Institute for Thought Leadership, GIFT, a three-time award-winning adjunct professor of leadership at NYU and a lecturer on leadership at Columbia University. He is the author of Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking and Leadership in Life, published last year by Post Hill Press, Simon & Schuster. My guest today is Todd Churches. I'm Aiden Nepom, and this is The Changed Podcast. To the Changed Podcast. Thank you, Aiden. It's great being here with you. I'm really, uh, I'm really thrilled to get to talk to you. Um, we were joking before we started recording about how this is a podcast, um, and your book is visual leadership. So, <laughs> you, you know, if we could paint a picture of this conversation, I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, but instead we have to use words. Yeah, there's actually an audio audiobook version uh, of my book on Audible, and it's there's a certain irony there of listening to a book about visual communication, visual leadership, visual thinking. So, um, but people who listen to it seem to enjoy it. And then a few of them have said they bought the book afterwards. So I guess it does work. It's the storytelling that gets people, but then the, the visuals, the models and the metaphors, that's what really uh, takes it to the next level. I mean, it makes sense that um, in order to tell the story of what it means to visualize information, you would need to create visual imagery for people so that as people are reading, they're picturing things. Yeah, I break it down into visual imagery and visual language. So if we're mm-hmm. t- t- telling stories, um, I mean, picture like people used to gather around. You ever watch those old movies where families are just gathered around the radio listening to yeah. the broadcast, right? It's like it's almost like you're watching in your mind's eye, right? You, you're, you're whatever it's the Lone Ranger or War of the Worlds or, or whatever, right? Or sometimes I'll, I'll be listening to a Yankee game in the car on the car radio and I'll say to my wife, wow, did you see that catch? And she's like, how did I see it? It's on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm watching the game in my head because I know what everyone looks like. And and you and so you basically create these mental images. And I know that in the world of improv, right, you're putting yourself in another world, another time, another place. You actually need to use your visual thinking muscle to kind of bring it to life. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, we absolutely we 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 create these worlds, you know, um, on stage together when we're improvising as performers on the stage. And it's definitely um, it, the idea is when you pick up an invisible object to mm-hmm. use it, you don't, you don't just like pick up an object. You you pick up an object and it should have weight. It's as if you can see it yeah. there. You know what that looks like. You know how it interacts with your body so that when you set it down, the rest of the world also pictures that object. Exactly. Um, exactly. Right. If you're really holding, holding a gun or you're holding a, a glass of water, right, you're still, right. you're holding an object, but you have to get your audience to believe what that object is through your technique, right? So yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, the truth is super nerd, nerd time here, but uh, a lot of us actually practice our mime work by picking up a real object. So I'll pick up my real glass of water. I feel Uh what that feels like. And then I practice picking up a fake version of that and Mm -hmm. feeling what that feels like and trying to use the muscles in the same way so that, so that this you know, dancing around with my glass feels the yeah. same visually as this. 
Yeah, it's muscle memory. It's like when I'm playing mm -hmm. basketball, there's times that I'm like making the motion of like shooting without a ball in my hand, just visualizing the ball and the hoop, but without the physical object there. So when you're out there, you're actually making that vision a reality when you actually have to do it. So it's, it's, it's very, a lot of parallels there. The brain is such a fascinating thing. I had a conversation with a storyteller on this show and um, she's an expert in storytelling and she shared with me that the brain, uh, the, the magic of storytelling is that we brain swap with people when they tell us stories. So if their visuals are painting a picture for us, all of a sudden we're transported. Um, you were talking about seeing the baseball play by listening to the radio and it called back a whole story for me of mm. sitting around a campfire on camping trips with my dad. And we have this little radio next to us, next to the fire. So we'd be roasting hot dogs on sticks, hovering over the fire while listening to the baseball game. And I could mm. absolutely picture everything that was happening in the game, despite that the visuals around me were woods and smoke yeah. and charcoal yeah. and um, and whatever from the fire. And, and the storyteller, what she shared with me is that, in theory, while I'm telling you that story, you're now picturing yes. campfire. I was on a just radio. about to say that I'm picturing you and your father and the campfire, and I know what you look like. But I'm picturing you at a younger age, and what does your father look like, and what does the campfire look like, right? So you're talk, so you're describing a visual memory, and I'm picturing you as you're telling the story, right? So it's it's kind of uh, it's very meta. We'll, we'll put it. It that is way. highly meta, but the, I guess <laughs> the takeaway is it's cool the way our brains function. Yeah, yeah. And I, I went to the, um, uh, I do a lot of work around both storytelling and metaphor, and I majored in English literature and was a concentration in Shakespeare and poetry as an undergrad. So I, I incorporate a lot of the arts into, into my work. And I did a workshop where I talked about Wordsworth's um, poem, The Daffodils. Um, and he talked about emotion recollected in tranquility. So he, the poem basically is about when he's laying on his couch, and he pictures in his mind's eye this field of yellow daffodils, he gets that same rush of emotion and elation as when he mm -hmm. saw them physically, even though he's, so when oft, oft when on my couch, I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. So how's that from my English literature background? But it's just a wow. great insight of uh you know how images flash in our minds and our body reacts emotionally as if we're experiencing it for the first time i just think that's the neatest thing yeah well so speaking of how our brains and our bodies react to things what are your thoughts about this broader idea of change this is the topic of all the episodes of this show which is how do people process change how do you todd churches feel about change when you hear that word what does that well, pull up for you well, on one hand, change is the, my least favorite thing in the world because I want everything to stay exactly as it is forever. But I know that's not the reality because I know that the only constant is change. So we need to accept that reality. Um, but without change, there's no growth, right? And there's no learning and there's no development and there's no progress. So change is just part of life. Um, there's a difference between when we change voluntarily and when change is thrust upon us, right? So. Um, I, I was never one, I never liked when change was thrust upon me and I had to respond mm -hmm. to it. Um, as you were talking, I was just flashing back on um, years ago, I was working for a company and um, I'm not a technology person. So it took me a while to learn how to use this computer system called DOS. Um, and they said, <laughs> we're getting a new computer system and it's called Windows. And everyone in the company has to switch over to it. And I was like, no, I just learned how to do this. And now I have to learn a whole new thing. So I was like kicking and screaming. I was literally the last person in my company to get switched over. <laughs> and they were literally standing there by my desk saying, Todd, you're the, you're the only one left. Um, 
they switched me over the windows and my reaction was like, wow, this is amazing and cool. And I was using it within five minutes. So it was like three months of dread and, and pain and suffering and torturing myself with I'm going to have to go through this change. And in five minutes, I was in, so it's like, I was thinking, what could they have done to get me on board with this change? Oh, and get me excited yeah. about the change instead of dreading the change. And that's, I think that's a big part of change is how do we ease people into it? Because some people love change. They're like early adopters, they jump on the, the newest bandwagon. Mm -hmm. And then there's people like us who are either later adopters or sometimes we say, I'm just going to sit this one out. I'm going to I'm going to let this uh, wave pass by. I'll catch the next wave. <laughs> oh, that's um, definitely a thing I do. Like, I yeah. think people assume that I am a person who loves change and thrives yeah. on change. And that's true when it comes to some things. Yeah. But when it comes to things that I feel uncertain about, and I think this might be a, a universal thread, but who knows? I don't want to draw conclusions. Um, but. I do think that when it comes to things, we feel uncertainty around that little bit of fear that I don't know what that's going to be. Yeah. There is that reluctance to adopt and that I'm going to sit this out. I'm just going to wait and watch on the sidelines and see what happens to all of you when you start using cell yeah. phones. Yeah, like I still haven't created my MySpace profile yet. Is that my too late? <laughs> my too late? It's, <laughs> it's never too late for MySpace. It still exists. Or at no, least it I did, did two years ago. Yeah. So I skipped that one, but I did jump aboard the Facebook bandwagon. And, and so it's like, again, sometimes we sit one out and it's totally fine. And other times you're a late adopter and you miss the boat. Right. So mm -hmm. I think those are choices we all have to make with when change happens is are we on board with it or are we going to wait for the next train to come along? So those are all personal choices that we each have to make. And so because you do a lot of work around leadership, when you think about that moment, how a leader might have helped you adapt that change faster, which was actually great for you once mm -hmm. you did it, the months of dread. And then you finally were like, oh, this is yeah. cool. What do you tell leaders that is helpful? You know, like to, I teach uh, leadership at both NYU and Columbia and, it, and in my NYU class, which is um, leadership for human resources professionals, I teach John Cotter's eight-step change process, which if you're not familiar with it, that's probably the most well-known in the business world, where he takes people through. It's like starts with a vision and getting a few people on board with your vision mm -hmm. and how do you roll a change out? Because if you don't go through all eight steps, if you stop at step seven, it's very easy for everything to un. un unwind and unfold and go backwards to where you started from. So you need to get change to stick. So we talk about change management, but it's also change leadership, right? You could put in a new process, but if you don't get people on board with the process, sell them on the benefits of the change. Um, so there's a whole, all kinds of techniques about the human side of leading change. So I think that's, I was never managed or led very well in my career. So that's one of the reasons I went into this field is to help creating, making mm -hmm. the world a better place through um, better management and leadership. And, um, and that's uh, because I was so badly managed and badly led, that's what drove me into doing what I do today. But yeah, leading change is, is not easy, but you have to remember that people are not robots and you need to, everyone adopts to change or responds to changes in different ways. And we need to be sensitive to that with empathy and compassion and, and see the world through their lens and say, all right, how can I help you get on board with this change? As opposed to just saying, well, we're changing, and if you're left behind, you know, I always have a no, no student left behind policy, no employee left behind. Like you uh -huh. want to make sure even the stragglers get caught up and um, you need to, as a leader, um, respond uh, to each person and connect with each person to help them um, get caught up. Yeah, I've been uh, recently, I've really taken to this phrase of it's not a one size fits all. It's a one size fits one solution. Mm -hmm. And though that can be a heavy lift, it's yeah. a lift worth heaving. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, um, yeah. I was, as I was preparing for our conversation, I was thinking about some of the crucible moments, the defining moments, and um, again, going back to poetry, Robert Frost, the road not taken, right? Two roads diverged mm -hmm. in the yellow one, and sorry, I could not travel both, right? So we all come to forks in the road, and do we take the one less traveled by, or do we take the familiar and comfortable one? And we all have to make those choices, and sometimes in the moment, sometimes we have times to think about it, but the bottom line is, when, you know, in general, usually there's no turning back, right? You go down a fork in the road and then that takes you down a path. So I was just thinking about what are some of the changes I made or choices I made that led me down a path, some better than others, but each one led to some change in my life, either in my professional life and or my personal life. Well, speaking of getting to know you just a little yeah. bit better and your professional and your personal life, I've been playing a game with my guests called Aiden asks you a bunch of questions and you try and answer them as quickly as possible. Right. And, and I know that that's a long name for a game. And it's, it's pretty, yeah, I don't know how that fits on in the TV guide. Is there a TV guide anymore? <laughs> I don't know, but uh, in the list. Um, and I'm accepting suggestions if you have one for a short name for that game, uh, though I'm kind of at this point so in love with the fact that it's just an exceedingly long name that I just... Yeah. I am opting into the Aiden challenge. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, the first questions really, really should be theoretically easy to answer quickly. Pie or cake? Oh, definitely cake. Why? Linda's Fudge Cake Cheesecake Factory, my single favorite dessert in the entire world. Nice. All right. You walk into your living room. What's the first object that catches your eye every day? Usually my wife and my oh. puppy. Oh, so sweet. We have, a, um, we, have a, we have a six month old puppy that we just got uh, three months ago. So. What's the puppy's name? Lucy. Little, little is... Havanese. The cute, she looks like a little stuffed animal. It's like. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, all right. Furniture. Rearrange it often or once it has its home. That's where the chair lives forever until it dies or you die, whichever comes last. Forever in a day. Nothing's moving. I, I stub <laughs> my toes a lot and I can't see without my glasses on. So once I know where something is, it's staying there. I'm now picturing you like Velma from Scooby-Doo. My glasses. I can't <laughs> yeah. see without my glasses. That is definitely true. <laughs> um, think back to the last trip you took. Do you sit down and say hello to the person in the row on the airplane next to you? Or do you put headphones in and pretend to be in a cone of invisibility? Oh, I'm Mr. Invisibility. I'm Mr. Invisibility. I don't, um, I don't I don't talk to anyone unless they talk to me first. I'm an extreme introvert. Even though I talk loud and fast because I'm from New York, I always say I'm a three B's guy, a back of the room, behind the scenes bookworm. So um, <laughs> if someone if someone in, in, initiates a conversation with me, I am more than happy to talk, but I am very rarely the one to speak first. Cool. That's good to know about you. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. What's your silliest pet peeve? The one thing you think you probably shouldn't care that much about, but actually do? The list is so long, I don't even know if we have time for this. So, uh, silliest, I mean, everything is, um, I have so many pet peeves, I can't even, I don't even know where to start. I mean, everything from not putting things back where they belong to uh, leaving things on the floor. I mean, just really, really, yeah, the list goes on and on. My silliest is about when a barista makes coffee and they put the spoon into the foamed milk to scoop mm. out the foam on top of a cup of coffee. I just, it grosses me out every time. Oh, I feel, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll walk out and not drink that coffee. Yeah, we, so you, just asked, you just asked me about my dog, Lucy. We were going to name her Peeve, so we could say this is our pet Peeve, but we decided <laughs> that. 
Um, Very just, funny. Just more, more for her, but than for us. But yes, that's how many pet peeves my wife and I have between between us. Um, and last question, um, okay. and this doesn't have to be as short of an answer, but it could be, uh, which is, uh, what's something that you're working on? Something I'm working on is turning my book into a series of masterclasses and webinars oh, cool. and workshops. Yes. My book was just published last year. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about it. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm trying to figure out how do I take the content that I've developed over the last 20 years and repurpose it in a variety of different ways to help. Um, it's called visual leadership. So it's all about how do you get people to see what you're saying, but also how can you see the world through a, a new lens? I love it. Well, this, I want to see the world through the lens of other people's change experiences. So this seems like a good moment. Okay. Um, I, uh, I would love it if you would share a fork in the road moment of your life, a moment of pivot, of change, after which things changed for you. Would you be willing to tell us a story now? What if I said no? Would you just end the podcast right here? I'd I would be like, never... that's it. You leave the show. Yeah, Did you get anyone... the memo? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had anyone do that. My challenge was um, deciding which one because I've had a few. I probably had like ten pivot of those pivotal moments, but the one that really stuck with me because I think if I made a different choice, everything in my life after that would have been completely different. So mm. um, it was after. 9-11, so, so 2001, I was not working. The economy was bad. We were all in depression. I'm in New York, right? So I literally saw I saw the smoke from the buildings. I knew I two of my, my aunts and my one of my college roommates got out just in time. They were in the, set, the second tower that was hit. So neither one was killed. But I knew a lot of people who were. Um, it was just a downtime for the whole country and New York. And I was in between jobs, in between relationships, just feeling hopeless and, and I needed something to do. Um, and I got in the mail a boomerang shaped invitation to a Dale Carnegie training, um, like 90 minute sampler workshop. And I usually just throw that stuff out, but I was like the boomerang, uh, it was kind of like, there's no coming back from this. So I love that metaphor of the boomerang because you throw it, you, 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 you can get hit in the head or you can catch it when it comes back. So I went to this event and Again, as an introvert, it's very uncomfortable for me to go to anything where I don't know any, what, every, anything about it or anyone there. But I went, I forced myself, and I met, I was introduced to um, the, the two guys who were running the workshop. And one of them, after talking to me, said, I really think this, and learning a little bit about me in just five minutes, he said, I really think this would help you with your confidence, with your public speaking skills. Because at the time, I was always, again, a back of the room, behind the scenes person. I had never spoken publicly. I never had to in all my years of school or work, um, how to get up in front of a crowd. And that just was not my comfort zone. But I, I, I forced myself to go. So I signed up for the day. And he, in fact, he said to me, because um, I was doing management leadership stuff, he said, I think you would make a good trainer and we need people to do management leadership training. So you have the content, the subject matter knowledge, even if you don't have the platform skills. But I think if you get those skills, you could be a great asset to us. And he said, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put you through the training. And if you like it, you could go through it again as a class coach. So you coached and then you could go on to get certified as a trainer. And I'm like, that was the farthest thing from my mind. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a trainer. I'm going to get up in front of people and do this. But I went through the training. I showed up for the, the train day one and I did not like the instructor. She was like very 
talking to the group as if we were kindergarten students and it just rubbed me the wrong way. So at the break, um, I said, this is not for me. I don't like this woman. I don't, I'm so uncomfortable. After the break, we each have to get up and talk and that's not something I want to do. So I, I took my coat and my bag and I was going to go home. And I went to the restroom and then it was just, everyone was going back into the room and I peeked through the window. They were just about to start. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go back in just for the second half. As much as I hated it and I went back in and I got hooked and I became a Dale Carnegie trainer. I became a college professor at NYU and Columbia. I've done a TEDx talk. I'm a public speaker. If I had turned around and gone home at the midpoint of that day, none of that stuff would have happened. And I have no idea what I'd be doing today. My book wouldn't have happened. All of the things that happened since. So like you talk about a moment in time, almost like a snapshot. I could actually picture myself out of body experience looking through that porthole window saying, do I go back in or not? And that's that's the moment that so I actually I actually wrote this down on this index card as I was thinking through and I just wrote down if I had a title list I would call this go in or go home and I went in that changed everything if I had gone home who knows what I'd be doing today wow thank you for sharing that story that's a cool story it's the first time I've ever told it in that and like I've mentioned it a few times to people but I've never told it publicly before so it was just interesting just to I was kind of channeling it as I was describing it to you I love that. In the, in that moment where you're making that decision, you, like when you look back on it, did it did it feel like time waited for you to make that decision? Like time kind of held on, held its breath for a second. Yeah, for a second. Yeah, it literally was like I was aware at that moment because there there I thought back on other times where I did leave things, right? And you always wonder like what happened. It's almost like it's a wonderful life, or it's it's like a movie yeah. where. Right. Someone makes a choice, but you get a chance to rewind the tape and say, what if they made this other choice or a movie that has multiple endings? So it was like it was literally like one of those moments that I said, you know what, I I lose nothing by going back in. but I could lose a lot by going back home. Right. So Mm -hmm. that was my thought process. And it all happened, like you said, almost frozen in time because I had to make that decision in 60 seconds because they were just about to start. And I had my coat and my bag. It would have been very easy for me to slip out, as I've done so many other times in my life at networking events where I was uncomfortable and um, or I just had had enough and I just wanted to leave and get home to my wife. And and, um, so, yeah, yeah. It's a really common thing for people to just slip out the back. Uh, recently I was, um, giving a training and, uh, it still happens virtually as well. I mean, I tell people up front, this is going to be an interactive experience. In order for you to get your value out of being here, you're going to be participating. And, and so it's normal at that moment for people to go, I can't do this today. And at the same time, I'm always like, what do you miss out on when you slip out the back? So it's such yeah. an illustrative story because in your case, you would have missed out on an entire <laughs> career. What were yeah. you doing? What were you doing for work? You said you were between jobs or unemployed, fun employed. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you didn't say that. I'm saying that. But yeah. w- what was your career path at that time? Um, I really, I had been living in LA for 10 years. So I had just recently moved back to New York a few years before. So I had a few jobs, but never really a career. So that's the thing. It's like this, that becoming a trainer and an executive coach is my career now and a public speaker and a professor and an author. Um, So I really didn't have a career at the time. I just had a series of jobs. 
Um, I was the vice president of business development for a web design company that was based in Denver that opened a New York office and they love my background and everything. But that was a job I took. It was a completely wrong fit. Didn't work out for a variety of reasons, but I took it for the title and the salary and, and I love the company and the CEO. It's just a bad, I'm not a sales guy and this was a sales job. Mm. So but sometimes we take a job because we need the money or we think it's going to be better. So um, I've taken jobs that I thought I was going to love and didn't like my job at CBS, where I ended up with the boss from hell that I write about in my book, who threw a box of pens at me because they were the wrong one. She literally threw the box at my head. Wow! Uh, they were supposed to be the paper mate media fine point, and they ended up being the medium point. So instead of just <gasps> How saying, "How could you make that mistake?" I don't know. No, I don't know what's wrong with it. But she, that's what she said to me. She's like, "If you can't even order a box of pens properly, maybe you better find yourself another job." And it turned out, I checked the purchase order. For the record, for our audience, I ordered the correct ones. The supply room <laughs> sent up. I ordered the correct ones. The supply room sent up the wrong ones. But it was still my fault because I didn't check it before putting it on her desk. So. There you go. Um, I really yeah. hope that style of leadership is a is a dying beast yeah. going extinct. Well, that, yeah, that's why I went in, to be totally honest. I mean, that, I'm kidding around, but that's why I do what I do. My personal mission statement is making the world a better place, one leader at a time. And mm -hmm. to me, everyone is a leader. So I start with that. And if I can make one manager better who has treats his or her people better, then I've made an impact. And hopefully that will cascade down because, um, yeah, I was working in. Long story short, I worked in advertising in New York. I moved out to LA um, and I had a series of jobs for a variety of TV studios. And I worked for uh, um, Michael Nesmith of the Monkees. I worked for Aaron Spelling. I worked in casting at Columbia Pictures. I was in comedy at Disney and I was a drama in drama at CBS, which is where I had that psycho boss. And then I got out of television and took a job in the theme park business as a project manager, where I, work on, I worked on the project in China, which I talk about in my TEDx talk, where I first had that aha mm -hmm. of, using visual thinking to communicate by drawing as opposed to just verbally. But um, yeah, I had so many great experiences, even with bad bosses in retrospect, as horrible as it was at the time. My book is dedicated first to my wife, secondly to my parents, and thirdly to all of the horrible bosses without whom the rest <laughs> of my life and my career would never have been possible. So, Do you think any, any one of those people will read your book and recognize themselves in it? I doubt it. They're, they're usually, I talk about that with bad bosses. They either enjoy being bad bosses or they're so clueless. They don't even realize that they're the ones being talked about. So I think it's the latter, you know, yeah. like I, 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 I often think about micromanaging. This is one mm -hmm. of the biggest complaints in business is how do I deal with my micromanager? How yeah. do I manage my micromanager? And, yeah. uh, and the thing about it is very few people to maybe zero people would say, you know, what kind of a manager I am. <laughs> The really micro I'm, version. I yeah. really micro get in there. I yeah. really like to get into every single detail yeah. because I want people to feel like I don't trust them. Yeah. And so, you know, it's yeah. like no one is ever going to say that. The intent, yeah. of course, behind those actions comes from all kinds of different places, from fear to even really good intent of yeah. trying to be supportive. But um, it always cracks me up to think about that there would be a bad leader out there who's like, I'm the worst kind on purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know if there are any macro managers. I'm not sure exactly what that is. So the micro is the details. I guess the macro is just the big picture person who doesn't care about the details. But most of my work right now in terms of my 
management leadership training, coaching, and consulting is helping people navigate in this COVID and post-COVID world mm -hmm. of uh, everyone, uh, people working remotely. If you check in too often with people, you're micromanaging and you're intruding mm -hmm. on their lives because they're working from home. Not often enough, people sometimes feel detached or demotivated or disconnected. So I'm coaching and training a lot of managers and how to navigate this new reality. And eventually it's going to be a hybrid workforce where some people are in the office, some people are at right. home. And again, a lot of managers are feeling um, you know, powerless or confused and, or paralyzed even in terms of what do I do? Um, and I think a lot of them do micromatch by checking in too often or having Zoom calls every 15 minutes and keeping people from getting their work done. So you need to create a culture of, of psychological safety where people feel comfortable coming to you, but also um, an environment of empowerment and accountability where people are judged by the results they produce, not by punching a time clock. So a lot of time, that's a mindset shift. Talk about change for a lot of managers. There's no more MBWA, which is managing by walking around, right? If people are working right. from home, you can't yeah, just you stop can't by just, the desk. Yeah, you can't just stop by the desk and be like, yeah. how's everything going? Do yeah. you need anything? Which is exactly. a really great strategy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I do think there are ways to do that. And I work, I work with folks on some of those things. There are mm -hmm. ways to do that um, that don't feel quite so intrusive as scheduling yeah a daily 15 minute check-in, mm -hmm. which feels incredibly intrusive and time yeah. taxing and energy taxing. Yeah. Well, that's um, the thing. A lot of managers are confused about how, right? So that they need people sure. like us to help guide them through, you know, here are some options, what works best for you. And there's no one, like we were talking about, there's no one size fits all for anyone or anything. So those are, that's what makes it hard is that people are not robots, even in this age of artificial intelligence and robotics and right. all this kind of stuff, you're still dealing with human people who have, uh, you know, limited brain capacity, cognitive load, burnout, working from All home, their kids and their pets and their parents. So um, everyone you know, could use a little help from people like us to help navigate this new, uh, new reality that we're all living in. Agreed. Yeah. I want to talk about your book, though. I want to talk about visual leadership specifically. Yeah. I want to okay. um, I want to dig into that just a little bit, because um, what's so cool about the story that you shared is that you have a book at the end of your story. You have mm -hmm. a book. Um, not only do you have a career, but you got this book. So I want to talk yeah. about it. Um, sure. I want to talk about what does it mean to lead visually? What is visual leadership? Sure. Visual leadership is um, the application of visual thinking and visual communication to the world of management and leadership. And the, the, the title of the book is a single word with a single shared L. So and the idea behind visual leadership is that who we are and how we lead is inseparable from the lens through which we see the world. So our upbringing, our background, our education, our life experiences, our culture, all those, those things shape our core values and our belief systems and how we act. So if you flip the eye, what I call flipping the eye and turn the eye on ourselves, basically holding a mirror up to ourselves and questioning who we are, how we are, how we lead, then you could be a more effective leader. So, so often with leadership, we're talking about what is your vision or so-and-so is a visionary leader. It has to do with seeing, right? Vision has to do with um, the eye. And so it's about seeing a, a future state that's different from and better than the current reality and then turning that vision into reality and also helping other people to turn their visions into reality as well. So that's at the foundation. That's what visual leadership is all about, using the eye as a metaphor. So it's what are you looking at? What are you seeing? What are you watching? What are you noticing? So all mm -hmm. of those things, both in terms of imagery and visual language as well. It makes me think of um, when I think about how how people communicate when I, they paint pictures for each other. It's like mm -hmm. there's this thing that happens. We talked about it earlier with storytelling, but it yeah. happens in all kinds of things. People paint pictures 
Um, but where it's often falls apart is they they forget to use enough words. You don't want to use so many words that people lose interest, but you want to use enough words that people pick up on the image that you're trying to share. So as you are having a vision mm-hmm. of what might be better in the future, you have to deliver enough information and in how you communicate that to others that they also can see that future. Otherwise, they just hear words. Yeah, my, my mantra is how do you get people to see what you're saying, right? Because mm-hmm. so, it's so clear in your mind's eye. And mind's eye, by the way, is a, a, a phrase coined by Shakespeare in Hamlet when he saw the ghost of his father and he didn't know if it was an apparition or mm-hmm. a, a, a figment of his imagination. So Horatio, he said, I see my father. Horatio said, where, says, where? Hamlet says, in my mind's eye. Um, how do you get that picture out of your mind's eye and into someone else's when you know that that person is seeing the world through a different lens from you? That's our biggest Well, challenge. that's my question. Yes. And the Ow. way to do that is through a variety of lead, visual leadership techniques. And I actually break it down to four, er- four categories. So category one is using visual imagery and or drawing. So that's basically pictures. That is, I could show you a picture. I could show you an object. For those listening, you may not see this, but I may say to someone, not drawing, I'm not using an image, but I may hold up an object like my Curious George doll, which reminds me to always be curious, ABC, always be curious. And then talk about change and flexibility. I keep my Gumby on my desk to remind me to always try to be, this is not my specialty, but to try to be flexible. Um, but it's using <laughs> visual imagery. And so even if you're not, even if you're listening to this podcast, if you pictured Curious George in your mind or pictured Gumby in your mind, that's the power of visual thinking. So you could take it in through your eye or you could even take visual thinking in through your ear, right? You can mm-hmm. hear something, picture it, and it's almost as if you're seeing it. So category one is imagery and drawing. And I just had my first articles published in Inc. Magazine. The first one was called, Can You Draw What Your Company Does? And not, and people could just Google it if you want to find the article, but it's basically- I'll put ex- a link in the show notes as well. Okay, great, great. It's basically yeah. an, an exercise I take my clients through. Can they, in a picture without speaking, illustrate, even if you have ICD, which is I can't draw syndrome, can you visually represent what it is your company does? And I don't want to give away the article, but this company completely reframed how they told the story about what they did using a different metaphor um, because of this exercise. So it's really cool to use drawing, mind mapping, napkin sketching, whiteboarding, whatever you want to call it, to get an idea out of your head onto paper or some other medium so other people can visually see it. And then you can start moving things around, right? That's why we have storyboards. That's why we have, right, before we shoot the movie, we create a storyboard because you want to picture what each scene looks like. So as I'm picturing this, as I'm picturing people drawing what their business does, it makes me think of other ways of visualizing things like charades. Does body language come into play here at all? Exactly. Yeah. Using body. In fact, the story I tell in my TEDx talk is that it ended up becoming a game of Pictionary and charades because it was like two words sounds like screwdriver, you know, because we had to communicate with our Chinese counterparts. They spoke no English. We spoke no Chinese. So we were constantly drawing back and forth. So it literally was like Pictionary and charades. Is it this big? No, it's this big. Right. So is it this high? No, it's this high. So we're constantly using our bodies and facial expressions. And there's that saying a smile means the same thing in every language. Right. So so there's a frown in many cases, in most cases. So we're, we're picking up in all, these are all nonverbal cues. So if you think about sign language, do you think about mimes, right? Can you communicate ideas, emotions, stories without the spoken word? We do that. So it's the, this, there's a principle called the dual coding theory, that dual meaning two. So if you leverage both the left side of your brain and right side of the brain, 
you're going to be more effective than either side alone. And picture mm. superiority effect says that a picture, that's why a picture is worth a thousand words, because a picture, a visual image is far superior to text when trying to communicate an idea in terms of what I call attention, comprehension, and retention. Visuals get you the focus, help you to understand, and help you to remember. So that is true, that what you just said about the power of using um, your body language to, to speak in, the, in addition to your voice. I I just was picturing, you know, as you were, <laughs> I'm going to just keep saying what I picture. Yeah, yeah. uh, I just keep picturing things as you're talking. And, you know, you were talking about working with um, a language barrier in your TED talk, which called to me, mind my own experiences living in Asia. Um, yeah, you I taught live, English in Korea, right? Is that what you Yeah, I did. I taught English in Korea yeah. and I belong to this rock climbing club and I would go rock climbing every day for a couple of hours in this gym and my my teaching schedule changed and I wasn't going to be able to be there during gym hours and I wanted to be there on a daily basis but I needed to be there in the mornings when it was closed but my Korean language skills were really bad mm. and the person who owned this club um the climbing master <laughs> I treated it like martial arts it was very cool um but he spoke really terrible English. And yet somehow through like going slow enough and using gesturing, mm -hmm. I ended up with key. He left a key for me in a secret hiding place. He showed me where the key was going to be. And I mm -hmm. came and went as I pleased. I got to just go climb in this place whenever I wanted. And I was mm -hmm. often the only one there. Um, and I was always struck by when I got home from that conversation, I was like, did I speak Korean? I'm not sure how we just accomplished that, but it yeah. was, it couldn't have been that I suddenly spoke Korean and couldn't remember how to speak Korean when I got home. Yeah. It was more likely that there was this, you know, talking through hands and yeah. uh, pointing at my watch or pointing at like painting a picture of the sun yeah. in the sky or whatever it was we were doing, but it worked. Yeah, that's very charades. Like, and you, like you said, he showed you where the key was. He couldn't tell you where the key was, right? Because you didn't speak the language. Yeah, he so had he, to walk me out the door he, of the building. But by showing he you, me. he used the power of visual communication to basically convey that information, right? In the way that that's, words would not have sufficed. That's really very cool. Yeah. Um, and you think about the actors on the stage, right? When you're blocking a scene, if you didn't visually walk through where the other person is standing and where the audience is, right, you just be colliding into each other, you could be facing the wrong way. So that's where, again, you're visualizing uh, like a Shakespearean play where there's no costume and no sets, you have to mm -hmm. transport you into another time and place, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you see it, you actually almost can visualize. If you're watching Julius Caesar on the stage, you're almost seeing the togas, even if they're wearing business suits or street clothes or jeans, right? So it's just kind of like, that's the power of visual. So um, so that was category, category one, visual imagery and drawing. Category two is using mental models and frameworks. And I could talk a long time about that, but basically like an organizational chart for a company or a mind map or a physical map, a subway map or whatever. So that's a way of using some a four box matrix or a pyramid or some, some kind of object or shape um, or um, to basically put things into boxes. We always talk about thinking outside the box, but you need to put things inside the box in order to see it more clearly. And that's the power and the value of using frameworks and models. Category three is using metaphor and analogy, explaining something in terms of something else. And category four is using storytelling with bonus points for humor, because humor makes people feel good and laugh and remember. So um, those are the four categories. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. They work in combination. Mm -hmm. But then that's what I do. I train leaders in how to use these four different techniques to more effectively get people to uh, see what they're saying. 
can you draw a picture of your book? Can I draw a picture of it? I can hold yeah. a copy. I, other people are, are, are like, could are, you tell the story of your book through picture? They are like, like you were saying, can if you're a leader, can you draw yeah. what your company does? Yeah. Are you able, Todd Churches, to draw what your book says? Yeah, I mean, my book says everything I just described, and I also the cover of the book. There's a there's a rainbow colored eye on the cover of the book. The rainbow represents two concepts. One is diversity inclusion, and the fact that no one in the world sees the world through the same lens that you do. Mm -hmm. So that rainbow eye, just like no one in the world has this color eye, no one in the world sees the world exactly as you do. So we need to look at things with a lens of empathy and compassion, and see things from other multiple perspectives. The rainbow eye also represents innovation and creativity and color, and the fact that we need to be innovative and creative in terms of how we go about doing this. So if we're coming to doing storytelling, if we're using metaphors, we need to basically think about who we're talking to, what's, who's our audience, what's our purpose, and what's a metaphor that might reson resonate with someone. So for example, I may using a tree as a metaphor, I could talk about planting the seed for an idea, going out on a limb, let's see which ideas bear fruit, we need to get to the root of the problem. So right there, that's a number of metaphors or expressions we use in everyday life that are using a tree as a metaphor. But I use a lot of sports analogies or dance or theater, but you need to have your metaphor resonate with your audience because otherwise metaphors are meant to explain and clarify, but they could also create chaos and confusion if you use a metaphor, example, or story that the person does not understand, right? So you always need to be thinking about who your audience is, see things through their lens, and say, how can I communicate in such a way that they will see what I'm saying? That's great. Um, what is, if you could, so, okay, I'm setting this, I'm, Here's a totally abrupt, going to ask a different question. But if you could change one thing about how people lead, and only one thing, because you get the opportunity to help people a lot, if you'd pick one thing, what would mm -hmm. it be? To do less talking and more listening. So even though we're talking about visuals, we're also talking about all the senses. There's an there's a, um, acronym VARC, Visual, Auditory, Reading and Writing, and Kinesthetic. So when we're communicating, or, or taking in information, we could take it in visually through our eyes, auditory through our ears or, and or voice, reading and writing as in text or numbers, and then kinesthetic is about touch, feeling, and movement, right? So if we're communicating in all those different ways and we're in the information in all those different ways, um, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of approach. So if we use all four, so some people say, oh, I'm a visual learner, but you can't communicate just in visuals, you need words as well, right? So that's what I would say is, using all the senses and different modalities available to you. And one of which is to be a better listener. Um, you know, the, the whole two ears, one mouth thing. So we should be listening twice as much as we talk. But um, when I do 360 um, performance reviews with, uh, with, with leaders, very often listening is the category that they rate themselves the highest in, but that mm -hmm. the people score them the lowest in. So I always say the biggest, the biggest gap is between the ears because everyone thinks they're a great listener. And a real life example, one, there was a leader who was, he was a great listener if or when he listened to you, which he hardly ever did. So if mm. you were somehow able to get his attention, he was unbelievable. He hung on your every word. He was empathetic. He saw your point of view but he was so distracted and unfocused that you could never get his attention. So that's because that, that, that was the contradiction. It's like, why do all these people think he's an amazing listener, but 90% of people don't? And that was the answer that we found, right? So with that awareness, he said, I need to listen more often and better 
and then that score went way up because he consciously made an effort to do that. So he made an what... effort to tune in. That's yeah. huge. That's incredibly important. A, a friend of mine was just saying that she's in a new job and as she was transitioning in, she kept going to her leader and asking him for guidance on certain decisions or processes and getting the wrong answers. And it was because he wasn't yeah. tuning in. He's very knowledgeable. There's a reason he's moved up through the ranks. He's been very welcoming. He hasn't been unkind. And every time she's asked for help, he's given it while doing something else. Yeah. 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 And so she kept getting the wrong answers. And it, I think that's a huge miss when you're leading. You really want your people to feel like they can come to you and get the guidance they need when they need it so that they can do their best work. And if you're letting them down by being by answering the wrong question because you weren't listening fully, then you're really missing the mark. Not only that, but they're going to keep coming back in the wrong way. So it becomes a time consumption thing. Yeah. And how important is listening in the world of improv, right? It's everything. It's everything. Yeah, that's it's what I was going to say. Everything. Yeah. People, people are constantly asking about, um, people who haven't taken improv classes will ask about like, oh, learning comedy or what it's like to be so funny. And mm -hmm. I, I've been teaching improv classes for years in addition to all this other work. And I can tell you, I, I don't think I can teach people much in the way of how to write jokes. I'm not a stand-up mm -hmm. comic, but I can teach you how to be a hundred percent dialed in listening yeah. from the back of your head. You can feel what's happening from the backs of your hands behind yeah. you. If you're really tuned into the moment. So yeah. listening is everything. And it's because Everything is an offer. Anything could be important at any mm -hmm. time. And the audience sees everything that's happening. Yeah. So you've got to see it from their point of view, as well as yours, as well as your scene partners. It's like yeah. that 360 degree awareness yeah. uh, that's critical for self-defense, critical for leadership, yeah. critical for military tactics and critical for improv comedy. It's you've got to be dialed in. Yeah, yeah, and that's a part. Just just hit the pause button for a second and pull back the curtain. Two metaphors. Um, knowing that you're an improv expert, I set you up for that answer, right? I would have, I wouldn't have asked that because I knew you would have. Oh, an right. I wouldn't ask the same question of someone who was not an improv expert, right? So that's a perfect example of knowing your audience and knowing mm -hmm. who you're talking to. Um, and when I teach listening, I teach the five levels of listening where level one is you ignore and you don't even hear anything. Level <laughs> two is where you're pretending, uh huh, uh huh, nodding, but you're scanned. Oh, yeah. Not hearing anything, which is actually worse than ignoring. Ignoring the person knows you didn't hear them. Pretend they think you did, right? So you're damaging oh. the relationship and you're causing all kinds of problems. Oh, I'm so guilty of doing that. Oh, <laughs> only in my only in my most important relationships, like okay, with my spouse. Yeah, only with your spouses <laughs> and family, family. So category three is listening to respond or selectively listening to where you're a filter and you only hear what you want to hear, what you need to hear. Level mm -hmm. four is attentive listening where you're actually hearing what the person's saying. And level five is empathetic listening where you're feeling what the person's feeling, right? Because you can hear the words level four, but you may, may not be able to, may not be feeling what they're experiencing, which is level five. And as a leader, we need to be listening with empathy and compassion, not just hearing the words, but feeling the feelings and responding to that person. So if, so, if you say to your employee, how's your day going? And they say, it's fine. It's okay. It's like, okay, great. Thanks. See you later. The tone of voice just told you that it's not. So as a leader, are you hearing that? Peter Drucker said the most important, who's the management guru, said the most important part of listening is hearing what isn't being said, right? Mm. That's the reading between the lines. That's the picking up on facial expression and body language. So if you want to be a good listener, you really have to be attuned to the other person and make the listening about them, not about you. So those are some of the things that I talk about when I'm training people to be better listeners, which is... Again, 
easier said than done, but it can be done if you're aware of it and you make a conscious effort to get better at it. Well, Todd, what's one thing that you want people to take away from this conversation as we bring it to a close today? Sure. Well, um, everything I do is around visual leadership, visual thinking, visual communication. So one thing would be really be more attuned to your environment. Start to notice things um, that maybe you hadn't seen before. Think about things you haven't thought about before. I, I end my TED talk and, and um, mentioned in my book, the line from the French novelist Marcel Proust, who said that the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new lands, but in seeing with new eyes. Right. So in your travels, if you go about your business, seeing the world with new eyes through a fresh lens, you're going to be a more effective thinker, communicator, manager and leader. Well, thank you for helping us see through that lens today, Todd. It has been wonderful talking with you. I, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Aiden. It was a joy. Appreciate it. Speaking of visualizing leadership, um, I'm reminded of a few years back when my colleagues at On Your Feet and myself were doing some work with a team at a popular running shoe brand. Uh, their chief point of contention seemed to hinge around a misunderstanding about how important decisions were to be made in this organization. You see, the team members thought all decisions, and I mean all decisions, had to run through their leader. Meanwhile, on the flip side, their leader was like, why do people keep bringing these low priority decisions to me? It's a waste of all of our time. So to empower the team to own more choice making, we sat down with them and helped them visualize how the team decision making might function using the model of a decision tree. And when I say tree, I mean, we drew a tree so that people could see that there are trunk decisions, those decisions that the leader really does own branch decisions, decisions in which the leader might want to give some input and probably should be informed about, but doesn't necessarily need to give sign off on. And then leaf decisions. Those are those decisions that the team could feel fully empowered to make without ever having to check in with the leader at all. By sitting down and visualizing how this decision making could go and who really did own what decision, the team finally felt empowered to do more and worry less so that they could get after what mattered most. I want to thank Todd so much for his time and his thoughts on what it means to be a visual leader, on visual leadership in general, um, and sharing a bit about his book as well as his story. You'll find links to pick up his book as well as links to other resources that we talked about during the course of the show in the show notes at thechangedpodcast.com. I want to hear from you. Have thoughts, feelings, sarcastic remarks, or a story to share based on listening to this episode? Help me keep the conversation going. Join the Facebook group, www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash change hub. Special thanks go to my family for their love, support, and patience to all of the amazing Changed Podcast Patreon page members who I couldn't do this without. Art of Change Skills for Life and Patreon member producer, Dr. Rick Kirshner. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Aiden Nepom, and I wish you the kind of experiences in life you're excited to tell stories about.